Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Who are we going to learn about today, Karen? Today we learn about Yoshiko Kawashima. She was a spy, and this is her story. Now, the two of us aren't really experts in Asian culture, and we're both Midwestern, so we may mangle one or two of the words, but the story was just so amazing, we had to give it a try. Before we begin, we want to thank all of you who listen, and we want to welcome new listeners to the show. I'm going to tell you a little bit about ourselves. We're just armchair historians who think spies are pretty cool, and we want to tell their whole life story rather than just their missions and share whatever reflections that we have regarding their legacies and have a little fun doing it. Yoshiko was born into the imperial clan of the Manchu Chen, born in Beijing in 1907 with the name Xianu, she was the 14th daughter of Manchurian Prince Shanqui, known as Prince Shu, and one of his concubines. The prince had 38 children spread amongst five women. It's a lot of children. It's a lot of kids. Yoshiko's father was 10th heir to the Prince Su lineage and was one of the 12 iron cap rulers of the Qin dynasty. Yoshiko was cousin to toddler Henry Puyi, who was last emperor to the throne. You know, like from the movie, The Last Emperor. Right. You know what I wonder is, how did they come up with the name Henry? I know. <laughs> I know. Yoshiko Kawashimi's family fell from power when she was four years old due to the Shinhai Revolution. Right. So Yoshiko's family line, the Qin Dynasty, they ruled China from 1644 until the Shinhai Revolution, which occurred in 1911-1912. They were imperialists. The revolution consisted of many uprisings and rose as a response to the decline of the Qin state. People believed that the imperialists had failed to modernize China and this neglect was a cause for continuous failures in military efforts to confront foreign aggressors is seen in the loss of the first and second opium wars the mm -hmm. first sin japanese war and a ton of internal military conflicts now at the time of the revolution there was a population boom and major technological advances were were occurring worldwide and the Chinese people felt that they were being left behind. Right. This was the time of the world fairs and all of that all over the world. So a lot of rapid things were happening. Well, when the family was dispossessed, neighboring powers swooped down like vultures, picking every bit of rotting meat from a carcass in order to gain power for their own interests. One of these people was Japanese nationalist intelligence agent Naniwa Kawashima. Kawashima, driven by the cause of Manchurian restoration, talked Yoshiko's father, the prince, into giving her to him to raise. Because Prince Shu believed in the same cause, he trusted Naniwa's intent. So, at the age of eight, 
Yoshiko was adopted by Kawashima and went to live with her new caretaker in Tokyo. It was at this time her name was officially changed to Yoshiko. She never saw her biological parents again. After the downfall of the dynasty, Yoshika's father, Prince Shu, survived under Japanese protection and lived as a Japanese. Now, he had always been a supporter of the Japanese because he believed that they could help him restore imperialism. Now, in another bid to regain power, he backed a warlord who was trying to put the now eight-year-old Henry on the throne. When that plan failed in 1921, Prince Xu swallowed an excessive amount of medals, killing himself. Now, because her mother was a concubine, she had no official identity upon the prince's death. So Yoshika's mother committed suicide according to Manchu tradition. Pretty uh, barbaric. Yeah, it really is. Well... Uh, tragically, on top of that, it's claimed that the man who took Yoshiko as his own did not treat her as a father should. He reportedly began dropping inappropriate hints that he planned to marry the child he was now raising as a daughter. One of the things that was said that he said to people was that the two of them would make beautiful children. And she was eight. He became increasingly jealous whenever Yoshiko interacted with others, especially if he perceived her as flirting. His possessive attitude eventually devolved into violence. Yoshiko herself wrote, I was hit today again. I just serve as an outlet for his anger. When he gets angry at others, he has gotten into the habit of hitting me. And one of the young woman's tutors described a time that they were forced to intervene when Kawashima went after Yoshiko with a shovel. Wow. Yeah. What was he going to do when he got there? Beat her to death? I mean, it's hard to just slapping right. somebody is one thing. Hitting them with a shovel is possibly killing them. Right. Exactly. Well, he was married and Yoshiko's adopted mother suffered severe mental health issues. I'm pretty sure we all know why. I mean, yeah, I'm sure her husband had a lot to do with chased with a shovel one too many times. Yeah. Well, she went mad to the point of scratching out her own face in any pictures that were taken of her. So wow. that was pretty intense. Yeah. As her home life worsened, Yoshiko isolated herself and just was completely immersed in studies. Her education included intense training in kendo. Chuck, do you know what that is? Do you know what kendo is? Kendo? Mm-hmm. It is fighting with bamboo sticks. It is. That is correct. It's kind of like fencing with the yes. bamboo sticks. Mm -hmm. And she was trained in judo and was given a well-developed understanding of social sciences and politics. Her tutor said that she was a very, very serious um, and very mature, like way too mature for her age type person. She was just very um, intense. As her caretaker's behavior became more and more inappropriate and controlling, when Yoshiko was 16, finally the unthinkable happened. Although Yoshiko never explicitly stated that she was assaulted, she made many allusions to the likelihood of this throughout her entire life. At one point, she wrote, 
I don't want to talk now or in the future about what went on in Kawashima Naniwa's house. Therefore, I do not want to write too honestly about what happened to me when I was 16. But even today, I cannot forget the night I ceased to be a woman forever. Whatever happened, shortly after, Yoshiko buzzed her hair and began dressing and living as a man. She claimed that the day she decided to cut her hair, she dressed as a typical Japanese young woman. She was draped in a kimono and had styled her hair in a delicate fashion. She then posed for a couple of photographs in a field of blooming flowers in order to, as she put it, commemorate farewell to life as a woman. After that, she went straight to the barber shop. The details of her life during her late teenage, early adult years are murky. Reports indicate that when she was 17, she was sent to a military academy. On graduation, after two years, she was well-versed in war science and espionage work. It is also stated that during this time, she engaged with relationships with both men and women and was heavily involved in the bohemian underground of her community. During this transitional period in Yoshiko's life, she also went back to China because she wanted to reconnect with her biological family, but she found that goal more difficult than she expected because of all the Japanese culture that she had adopted. A couple of years later, her guardian arranged for her marriage and she returned to Japan. When she arrived, she had shifted back to a feminine manner of dress. She married the son of a Chinese-Mongolian military leader who had been killed in a battle that her guardian had helped finance. After the ceremony, the couple moved in with his family, as custom dictated. She found this arrangement difficult and oppressive. Well, usually living with your in-laws tends to be both of those things. Doesn't sound fun, no. No, it does not. In her childhood, she had learned how to make isolation her friend, and having people all around her just made her feel very stifled. The household also spoke a language she was no longer fluent in. She was much more comfortable speaking Japanese, and attempts to communicate with her new family were met with frustration and strain. Which is pretty much the norm for communicating with any family. (laughs) That's true. Creates frustration and strain. After two years, Yoshiko left the marriage. Although she stated in later interviews that the union was forced upon her, some sources close to Yoshiko say that her adopted family had actually known the young man for a long time and that Yoshiko had fancied him and that the marriage was consensual. Either way, Yoshiko attempted to maintain a congenial relationship with her ex-husband. And she was so congenial that she showed up at his wedding to another woman and would drop off a gift every time his wife gave birth. But here's the weird thing about that. Her ex-husband never spoke publicly to Yoshiko again. So he did not feel so congenial. So we don't really know what her attempts to be nice were. Perhaps it was indicative of the constant internal conflict of who she wanted to be. I mean, she went from being a woman to a man to a woman. And she sometimes felt Japanese, sometimes Chinese. I mean, she was constantly conflicted. So it may have been that. Maybe it was guilt. Maybe it was a sense of pride or concern over her reputation. Maybe she just wanted to make him feel uncomfortable. We just don't know. 
After her marriage dissolved, Yoshiko made her way to Shanghai, where she was recruited by the Black Dragon Society, which is when she began her espionage work. The Black Dragon Society was an underground Japanese nationalist group who worked against party government, big business, and westernization. They combined forces with other like-minded groups and organized terrorist activities and assassinations. They were, they were kind of scary. They were a scary group. Right. At first, she was positioned as a concubine to a Mongolian prince to gain information. While she was pretty good at the job, she grew bored and escaped in the dead of night on a horse. The Dragon Society, they were trying to utilize her, and they got very frustrated by this erratic behavior. But they also knew what a powerful asset she could be because of her birth heritage and her connections. So they decided to try again. This time, they embedded her within the Kwantung Army. It was there that Yoshiko met Kenji Dohara, who was the future general. Kenji saw what Yoshiko was made of and felt that with her help, he could secretly achieve government goals, so he positioned her in various places to gather information. Her first assignment was under the disguise of a female teacher. She made connections with educators and news organizations and gained the confidence of civil and military authorities that were beneficial to the Japanese cause. Yoshiko fraternized with a plethora of military officers, but she also frequented opium dens as a prostitute to gather information from civilians. Wasn't she an opium addict, too? She did become an opium addict from a lot of sources say that. Mm -hmm. Yes, she did. She did. It got pretty bad. She also went to dance halls and ballrooms to establish assets and gather intel. And she would go to these dance halls. Sometimes she would go as a woman and sometimes she would go as a man. In fact, one time she termed herself other sex. So she felt equally comfortable doing both. She was like one of the first non-binary people. Right. It was very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, she would take the identity of a rickshaw operator in order to listen to sensitive conversations. Sometimes she would disguise herself as a male soldier and engage a group of military men to gain access to their mission objectives. Hold on, hold on. She was like 63 pounds or something, wasn't she? Right, she was tiny, like 90 pounds soaking wet. Yeah, she mm -hmm. wasn't flying through the streets on that rickshaw right. then, I wouldn't think. Well, I don't know. Apparently she was pretty strong. While she was busy with her espionage work, Yoshiko met and engaged in a long-term relationship with Ryuchiku Tanaka, another military official. Tanaka utilized Yoshiko's Manchu and Mongolian noble connections, and he established a spy network. And she had already established a lot of that network. At one point, Yoshiko managed a network of over 400 spies. She was still living with Tanaka, during what the West refers to as the Shanghai Incident of 1932. Yes, and this event is basically what sparked the Second Sino-Japanese War of 1937. On January 18th, I get this, five monks, Japanese monks, now they were known members of a passionately nationalist group. But these five monks are attacked and beaten near the Shanghai factory. That's now, pretty bad to beat up a monk. 
that's to I beat mean, up five of them is just really killing your karma score. Well, I think that beating one probably. Yeah, went, but, but they went full Monty on got five of them. Yeah. So two of the monks. That's literally a handful. Yes, it is, Karen. Okay, <laughs> so two of the monks were severely injured, and one passed away. One died. Oh. Well, this made some people very, very angry. And in the ensuing hours of this, the factory was burnt to the ground. Now, when attempts were made to calm the chaos, several police officers were seriously injured. One was killed, resulted in an uptick of anti-Chinese, anti-imperialist sentiment, civic protest, and calls to boycott Japanese goods. After these tensions arose, Tanaka was called back into service and left. When he went back to his job, so did Yoshiko. She picked up her espionage work and continued to serve as a spy for Major General Kenji Doahara. Most of her missions were in Manchuria, and she was usually in disguise. She opened and managed a fancy restaurant, which was actually a front for her extensive spy organization. As manager of the restaurant, she was known to be flamboyant and wild. She was very beautiful, though, and because her ability to transform into a man was so novel at the time, she became a source of obsession for the Japanese people. Some were so in awe of her that a simple command could both spare or take the life of a Chinese prisoner caught in Japanese hands. Working with Kenji, Yoshiko even convinced her cousin, the little guy Henry, who was supposed to be the last emperor, she convinced him to take his place on the throne. But once he did so, he was really just a puppet for the Japanese. In other words, he was a Manchurian candidate. Wow. Okay, that was nice, the way you worked that in there. Yeah. <laughs> Yoshiko... Like the famed Matahari, used her notoriety and made radio appearances. She even cut songs and records, and she would release wild stories outlining her exploits and liaisons. Although this increased her celebrity and her finances, it compromised her effectiveness as an intelligence agent. Yeah, when people know who you are, it tends to make it hard to do secret agent stuff. Yeah, especially when you're writing songs about being a secret, you know, secret agent. <laughs> secret, secret agent, agent woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, despite the fact that she raised up a paramilitary unit to fight anti-guerrillas in 1933, the Japanese found her too notorious to work with. They were like, yeah, no thanks. In fact, so much that they began to see her as a liability and worked to block any public appearances or media attention. They also tried to kill her. Yeah. During the course of her life, Yoshiko made a lot of enemies. According to newspaper reports, in the early 1940s, the tiny woman was stabbed by an assassin. Then, while she was in the hospital recovering, a couple of nationalist soldiers that were in disguise, they came to her hospital room and they attacked her by beating her with small hammers. Small hammers. I know. It, it's not funny that she was beaten. It's just that's kind of odd, the, the small hammers. <laughs> it's like they didn't really want to kill her. It's just they wanted to just punish her and make her very uncomfortable. It was, it was the first version of like water torture, but it was with hammers. 
just like little hammers, you know? I don't even know if you could equate that with it. That's just like annoying. Just like quit hitting me with that tiny hammer. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the Black Dragon Society, the group she once worked for, also tried to have her killed. And more nationalist groups tried to murder her twice. But she eluded their grasp each time. Now, the Black Dragons would have came with big hammers. Sledgehammers. Not tiny hammers. No. She eventually sought refuge in a Peiping house, and she outfitted it as a fortress. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story. So she put snares and traps all around the property. And she reportedly had 29 police dogs, not 30, 29, a bunch of monkeys, and then two geese that were trained as guards to watch the property. You know, I'm not breaking into any place that's got geese. Right? Because geese are horrible. The dogs. You throw some ground beef and some steaks yeah. and that around. Now, the monkeys, monkeys can be really, really nasty, especially if they're trained to attack. You know, what if instead of the police having canine units, they had monkey or geese units? Geese units. <laughs> Because if you made it past the dogs and the monkeys and came up on two geese, it's like, oh, no, I give. I'm not messing right. with these geese. Yeah. Because they're, yeah. they're bred to fight. They're like pit bulls. They're just trained they're horrible. to attack. Geese are just, well, I'm not saying pit bulls are horrible. Geese are horrible, horrible creatures. I, I mean. To, I, I This is a true story. I had to hit a, a geese or whatever. A goose. A goose. <laughs> I had to hit, there was a, there was three geese and one kept coming after me. I had to actually hit it. I had to slap it in the head. <laughs> get it away from me. I was fishing. I was minding my own business. That reminds me of the Jimmy Carter story where he where was he had like. To beat the rabbit with the thing, the <laughs> yeah. rabbit, rabbit. But I mean, I mean, it's, it's terrible, really, but. What, you think, I didn't think that, you know, at the beginning of this day, I was going to end up slapping a goose. <laughs> But I, I was like, man, how many, you've like hit me, pecked at me like four times now. And I've tried, you know, I've stepped aside. It's just <laughs> apparently something personal between me and you. So when he came to peck me like the fifth time, I just slapped him in the side of the head. And then he got so mad mean. and went away. Now we're going to get emails about animal abuse. Well, people are, were around that were there were like, did he just slap a goose? And I'm like, are you kidding <laughs> The thing was trying to pluck my eyes out. It's kind of like duck, duck, goose. That's why you slap the person (laughs) when it's goose. Yeah, there you go. Well, despite all the efforts that she used to fortify her home, after the September 1945 surrender, Yoshiko Kawashima was hunted down by the Chinese. She was nearing 40, and her body was worn down, and her soul was tired. So she wasn't even 40 yet, and she was just done. She was also battling multiple illnesses, and years of opium use had dulled her senses. Although she evaded capture for a few months, she was finally arrested in November of 1945 and charged with being a race traitor and a collaborator with the enemy. In a twist of irony, it was actually a Chinese spy that was under the guise of working as Yoshiko's servant that helped officials with her capture. So she was caught by the very thing she always was. 
She was held in Habai Model Prison until 1948, when she was executed by firing squad. Her body was left for public viewing and was observed by hundreds of Chinese people. The more that I researched her, the more I think that her story is very similar to Matahari's. In fact, she's called the the Matahari of the East. And during this time period, the whole concept of a wanton woman was very much they used women that they could. Yeah, especially in that culture, yeah. Right, could show as being a wanton woman as a example of how not to be. So it's just, it's really sad, the the whole execution by firing squad and everybody else that was involved um, that was tried as war criminals that I mentioned, they were, none of them were killed by firing squad. So it was a clear discrimination. Yeah. Well, there's a bunch of conspiracy theories floating around that the body viewed by so many was not actually Yoshiko. And one of the more popular theories is that she paid a prostitute from one of the opium dens to replace her. And when that woman was killed, Yoshiko was making her great escape. And in 2008, a Chinese artist came out with the sensational story that they had actually grown up with Yoshiko, sharing their home, and that the spy had been known as Granny Fang, and that she died in 1978. Now, Chinese news outlets reported on a gold lion statue owned by Fang that held a cryptic message penned by what some handwriting analysts determined to be Yoshiko's hand. Wow. Well, most academics refute this and the other theories about the body, believing instead that the princess turned spy died when officials said she did. It's interesting to think that maybe she didn't, though. Well, I mean, I heard it on Alex Jones. <laughs> well, no matter what the truth is, Yoshiko's legacy today is a complicated one and completely dependent on who you ask. Overall, the Japanese view her as heroic, and the Chinese view her as barbaric, but the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Yoshiko was a woman of contradictions and of deep sadness. She was used and learned how to use. Her relationship with her homeland versus the land that raised her was tumultuous and complicated. Although she had committed atrocities against China, she also harbored an affection for it and later in life spoke out about the way Japan treated the Chinese. Yeah, the and then that's one of her problems was that during those wars, the Japanese were just really barbaric to right. the Chinese. Right. Well, her own words penned in a letter to a friend give insight to the heart of the woman nobody truly knew. Japanese and Chinese are all Asian sisters and brothers. There's nothing so foolish as sisters and brothers killing each other. All people love their homeland. I have dreamed of making my homeland, China, stable and free of war, with Japan's help and guidance, and seeing it become, along with Japan, a great Asian nation. Both Japan and China have been reduced to skeletons. Why do they attack and kill each other? What do you think, Chuck? Do you think that Yoshiko was kind of 
bred to be a spy? I mean, do you think that that was the plan when she was first adopted at eight? Or do you think it just happened? I think it just happened. I know you kind of feel differently, but I think it was just, that's the way her life played out. I think because of her ties to China, I think that she was actually, I think it was planned um, from the time she was eight because she was adopted by that secret agent and that was his goal. And just the specific training she had in espionage and things like that, I think that she was probably trained to be a spy from the time she was young. We know this. Yoshiko Kawashimi was a princess, an orphan, a victim, a rebel, a warrior, a lover, a celebrity, a Joan of Arc heroine to some, and a human devil to others. And she was a spy. We want to thank everyone who takes the time to listen to the show and all those who support it. We would like to especially thank our friends over at HD, you know who you are, and our friends at the Podcast Junkies Discord server. If you would like to support us, there are many ways to do so. You can share the show on social media, follow us on Twitter at Spy Stories Pod. You can join our Facebook group, Spy Stories Podcast Group. You can leave us a positive review on iTunes or whatever platform you use. You can also become a Patreon supporter. Now, as many books as Karen buys for this show and subscriptions that she has to <laughs> magazines, there's a be lot. greatly appreciated. We'd like to spend a, <laughs> send a special thank you to our patrons, Ruck, Sarah, John C., Jessica M. We also want to wish a happy birthday, correct, to Karen? Yes, it was last week. Mm -hmm. Yes, and yeah. thank her for all of her support. Yes. The life of Yoshiko Kawashimi reminds us that we never truly know someone's story, and it's both irresponsible and ignorant to judge them based on what the eyes take in in that present moment. Everyone has a story, and oftentimes tragic circumstances shape them into who they become. But just as all can be shaped by adversity, they can also be sharpened by it to be a weapon for a cause that they believe in. Yoshiko reminds us, like Harriet the Spy says, life can be hard, but a good spy always gets in there and fights. And until next week, keep fighting.